Today I wanted to uh, consider Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And the Bible's uh, provided that we've given you kids, or if you've got one on the back table, that begins on page 980 and goes into 981. This passage in Philippians is one of the most poetic and inspirational of all of Paul's letters and possibly even in the New Testament. Paul's letters, um, letter to the Philippian church is an interesting one because it doesn't have the stern warnings that we sense in the books of, uh, of Colossians or in Galatians. He's very encouraged by what he's seen and by what he's heard in the Philippian church. However, he does seem to be concerned about one thing that can hurt it, and that is conflict. He writes to them, encouraging them to seek to live together in harmony with one another for the sake of the gospel. I've entitled this sermon, Equipped to Live for the Glory of Christ, because Paul commands them in 127 to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But in verses 29 and 30, uh, in 129 and 30, we see that a life worthy of living um, for, of the gospel isn't what we may think of as kind of living on flowery beds of ease, living in commune, commune with one another where everyone is, is peaceful and, and uh, we're, we're helping one another and there's just encouragement and there's no strife. That's not the life that we see even in this letter. But rather for, for Christ's sake, we, we believe in him and we suffer for his sake. We saw that in our, in our uh, New Testament reading. All who desire to live a godly life will suffer. So the gospel glorifying life isn't one absent of conflict or suffering, but rather it's found in how we deal with conflict, how we respond and stand in suffering. Now, typically when we hear of suffering for the sake of Christ, we think, oh, well, we must not be Christians because we don't suffer the way that Paul writes of. But I think that that attitude in many ways prevents us from living a life worthy of the gospel because we overlook the continuous low-grade suffering and conflict that we sense every single day. I visited with several folks this week who mention conflict and, and struggling, but they don't really say, man, I really need help, I'm struggling. It's just kind of assumed. Maybe it's political conflict. Maybe it's struggling with how to parent a kid or a, a grown kid. Maybe it's disagreement of competing priorities at work. Maybe it's conflict over medical precautions. We all have differing uh, ideas on COVID issues every single day. Every single day we're dealing with that. We may have conflict in our homes with our spouses or parents that has been going on so long that we don't even remember the precipitating event that caused the conflict. It's just a low-grade static in the background that we've learned to live with. We experience daily spiritual conflict with the world and even in our own earthly world, our own fleshly desires within. And suffering may not look like Paul's suffering that we considered last week, but suffering is a daily part of life for the Christian. Every single time we, de we deny ourselves or we stand against sin, there's suffering. 
We perceive we have given up something. We suffer loss. We've refused what the world claims is our right. We live in a world that makes much of itself and demands and dares you to speak up and take what's rightfully yours. And when you don't do that, you suffer for it. You suffer emotionally, you suffer spiritually, and maybe even economically. But we've grown to discredit or reject any of those things as conflict because, or suffering because they don't seem drastic enough. Even as we considered the suffering in the, in the newcomer house with, with five of six having COVID over the last few weeks. Has it been hard? Maybe. It's not too bad. It's okay. Do we chalk that up as suffering? Absolutely we chalk it up as suffering. Because we are forced to, to put a, lay aside our own desires and lay aside our own well-being and seek to stand and seek to persevere in the trials of daily life. We do all of that for the glory of Christ. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, Paul teaches us that we're not alone in this life. God has not called us, has not only called us to live for his glory, but he has sufficiently and practically equipped us to live for his glory in the face of suffering and conflict of daily life. This is how we'll divide our time this morning. We are equipped to live for the glory of Christ by the mind of Christ in verses 1 through 5 by the work of Christ in verses 5 through 11, and by the word of Christ in verses 12 through 18. So let's begin reading in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's word. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among, you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. First thing I'd like for us to see is we are equipped to live for the glory of Christ with the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ isn't something that is just loaded and fully operational uh, when we become a Christian. It's not like God just pulls out this mind and goes, okay, ready to go. You're, you're set. No, we don't automatically turn off worldly thinking, which is possibly an encouragement to some of you young, younger Christians. Rather, it's a process by which we learn to think as Christ thinks. This is completely impossible for the unregenerate person, for these things are spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that God has blinded the minds of unbelievers, but not us. We have been given the mind of Christ. We're able to receive instruction. We're able to understand the true nature of things. We're able to distinguish in my own life the will of the flesh with the will of God, according to Romans 7.25. But Paul shows us that our minds are not, as I said, plug and play. As we'll see later in verses 12 and 13, this mind of Christ is something that we develop over time, not on our own, but rather with the Lord's help. For it is God who works in us, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So how do we develop this mind of Christ? In, verses, in verse 1, we see three ways that Paul encourages us to develop this mind of Christ. One, we think on the encouragement that we have in Christ. So, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, what does he mean there? Think on how you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Think of how you came to know Christ and how the Lord revealed himself to you. Think of others in your family or friends who have heard the same gospel that you have, yet they have not responded at all. We know that the only explanation for that is that God has enabled us to think this way. There's no other explanation for it. We'll sing about this in our communion hymn. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? That builds encouragement in us, in Christ. The reality of God's election is encouraging to us because we know that what God starts, he always finishes. We remember that from the golden chain in Romans 8, that those he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. That's encouraging. We know that God is still about his work in us. We see that from the beginning of the letter in 1.6, where Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's very encouraging. That builds in us the mind of Christ. As we know that we're not waiting for the other shoe to drop or the sword of Damocles to fall on our head. No, we know that God has begun a good work in us, and so we press on knowing that he is still at work in us. 
Secondly, we develop this mind of Christ by finding comfort in his love there in verse 1. We remind ourselves that God has loved us with an unconditional love. It's not based on what we can do for him. Because God displayed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We find comfort in his love because it's rooted in his love for Christ. And the pleasure the Father has for the Son is the same pleasure that the Father has for us. As the old hymn says, it is a love that will not let me go. We're also comforted not just that he loves us, but that it is a, a patient, sympathetic love for us. We see that uh, there. Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. It's a sympathetic love that he has for us. It's not an impatient love. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. When we are dealing with a perfect, holy, righteous God, we would think him to be impatient with us the way that we are with others. The way that we are with our kids or our employees or students. Like, come on, man, we've been over this. How many times do we have to do this? I've given you everything you need to do this. Why isn't it done? How many times do I have to tell you? God doesn't act that way with us. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Paul entreats these Philippians that as they think on these things, emulate these blessings in their interactions with others. Think of your encouragement. Think of the love that you have received from the Father. Think of your patience and sympathy that the Lord has toward you and share that, and share that with others. And in the process, we will build unity, which we see in verse 2. In full accord of one mind, in agreement on all things? No, but on this. Well, what's this? The gospel. The gospel is mentioned five times in Philippians 1. And it is the basis of the exhortation that we just considered um, um, in 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. What are you unified in? The faith of the gospel. And in verse 3, Paul warns us of two enemies to the mind of Christ, which are, the which are emblematic of the mind of the flesh. We see there two enemies to the mind of Christ, selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition, a desire to get what I have coming to me, to work in such a way as to elevate my interest in my prerogatives or my rights above everyone else's. A desire to advance, to exert, to advance or to exert your will upon a group or an organization or a company or a people for your benefit or the benefit of your group's interest. So is there anything wrong with being promoted or given more responsibility at work or rising through the ranks? No, not at all. 
There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with doing a job well and being recognized and rewarded for it. But Paul is talking about selfish ambition, the desire to be in power or authority so that you may promote your interest or your causes above the interest and causes of others or so that you may gain advantage over them. Tim said yesterday that every time I take a sip, he knows it's 20 more minutes. So... um, I've been thinking of that for the last 45 seconds. Uh, um, the other enemy to selfish, uh, the, the mind of Christ, in, uh, uh, outside of selfish ambition is conceit or pride. The old NIV says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Conceit, a di- desire to be made much of. A desire to shape or craft others' opinions of you. Think about what you say and why you say it. Are there times that you say something because they cause others to think more highly of you? Even comments that can be a blessing to others. Are you aware? Are you conscious that that, this comment, it's going to bless them, but it's also going to put me in a favorable light? Does that fit into the calculus of your conversations? It may seem really strange, but I've noticed that this week. As I've gone about my week and been working through these verses, I've said, I've not said a lot of things that I normally say because I'm like, "Mm, am I saying this for their benefit or mine? Am I crafting an opinion? So is this helpful just to them or is it helpful to me? Or do I want to say this because it's going to make me look bad or it's going to put me in a less favorable light and then going ahead and saying it. But it's just thinking about why I say things, the, what I say and why I say it. Paul encourages us to fight against the thoughts of the mind of the flesh and instead in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Freely encourage others and offer compliments to others. Not flattering them, but encouraging them. Yeah, it may diminish your status, but it may be an encouragement and a means of grace, pointing out evidence of grace to them. Don't offer praise in such a way so that you set yourself up for praise or acknowledgement in return. Be selfless and humble and self-forgetful in your encouragement of others. And when we receive it, follow Jesus' advice that we considered last week. We are unworthy servants. We only did what was commanded. And mean it. Mean it. Paul offers us another way of fighting against, a, a, a way of fighting against the mind of the flesh in verse 4. By saying, Let's, let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. He doesn't say, don't consider your own interest, but rather look to both yours and theirs. Have them hold the same weight. Be just as willing to take into consideration others' others' interests and act on it, oftentimes at the expense of your own. Brothers and sisters, I'm encouraged because as I've thought this week, I see this every week in this church. Every week. Randy and Rosalie are the first ones here every week. 
when I come in, the table's here, the cloth is out, the Lord's Supper is prepared, the cups are filled, the bread is broken. What's their interest? They could sleep in. They could be drinking coffee for an hour longer. But they don't. They're looking to the interest of others and not their own. The same could be said for Lucas and going to pick up Brenda or Karen picking up Regina or Larry uh, setting up all these chairs so that other people don't have to or, or Karen printing out large copied bulletins for people who have difficult eyesight. And Wade and Jimmy and Julianne who do the books and who make the deposits and handle all our banking and accounting. And the Williamsons who've had music equipment taking up a chunk of their garage for a year and a half. And lugging it back and forth every week, having to lay down seats and put it up and load and unload and load and unload. Is it in their interest, any of those people to do that? No. And none of this sounds like that big a deal. It's really not. Except they're counted on every week. And even the most sane-hearted among us are reminded, you know, this really doesn't jive with my interest. I'd really rather be doing something else. Isn't it time somebody else did this stuff? I mean, I look around here. Things would be more convenient if I did this and... and uh, uh, Things, uh, there are things that would be more convenient for them to be doing, but they don't do it. And we benefit from this directly or indirectly every single week by their godly example. And knowing these people like I do, they're encouraged to hear this and be recognized, but they're also uneasy about it because they fight pride. They don't want to do these things for selfish ambition or vain conceit. They do it because consciously or subconsciously because it brings glory to God. Are any of these, are any of these acts that we've discussed here going to be written about in a story in the Texas Baptist magazine? Absolutely not. But God sees every single one of them. And He is encouraged and it provides each of us with a, just a small, faint glimmer of the glory of Christ that encourages us to live for that glory as well. But we need to understand what's being said here. We can't just ask people to just forget their differences and their prerogatives and interests and just be friendly and kindly and, self, and selfless. That's not the message here. Look, man, just do it. You're Christians, do it. That's not what's being said. The only way we can do this is if we have a common allegiance to something bigger. If we have a desire that is greater than our own individual preferences, and that is to see the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ raised. Randy and Rosalie don't do what they do because Rosalie has long desired since she was a little girl to break bread for the Lord's Supper in an elementary school cafeteria. No, it's desire to see God glorified. And this is a way to do it. Speaking of which, if any of you want to take on any of these roles and deal with them for a while, 
I'm sure there would be people who would love to take a break. If you'd like, if any of those things are, you know, this is something I can do for a while. Let me know or let one of the elders know. But this all comes about not because we just have just pulled up our bootstraps and tightened our belt and just decided, okay, we're going to do this. No, we can do it because we've been given the mind of Christ, which is in verse 5. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones on this point. The program which is outlined here by the apostle is only possible to the Christian. It is useless for the world outside. There is nothing that is so utterly idiotic as to ask men and women who are spiritually dead because of sin to be humble and to think of others before themselves. They are incapable of such an action because before they can implement the the apostles' teaching, they must be born again. Paul says you can do this because you have the mind of Christ, which leads to our second point, verses 5 through 11. We are equipped to live for the glory of Christ by the work of Christ. Paul says, look, consider Jesus, who was God, who left heaven, and without ceasing to be God, became man. And while he was on your earth, he did not use his position as God to compel worship or deference. He was due worship, but he didn't avail himself of any of the privileges of God, but instead took the form of a servant. Think about that for a second. Jesus performed many miracles and displayed his divinity in countless ways, but never, never in a way that benefited himself. Every time he exerted his, his authority as God, it was for the benefit of the downtrodden or the hungry or the weak or the lame or the blind or the rejected or the unclean. And he displayed his divinity at great cost, personal cost to himself. It led to opposition and wrong-headed thinking about what he had come to do and who he was. He was mischaracterized and mocked. And at any time, he could have said, you shut your mouth, I am God. And I will be worshipped. He demanded the waves to be still, but he never commanded people to do the same. You worship me. He never said it. Even as he is challenged and humiliated on the cross, prove your God. Come on down and we'll believe. Even in that moment, he didn't avail himself of his divine privilege. No, instead he humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. But not now. Verse 9. Not now. Now he's highly exalted. And God has placed on him the name that is above every name. In one day, every knee in heaven shall bow, even on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I've heard people take this section of scripture 5 through 11 and just the argument is look look at Jesus he's your example if Jesus could do all of this and he was God the least you could do is come off your high horse and forego some of your pride and privilege for a little while 
But look, when you get to heaven, you'll be rewarded for it. You're, you'll be rewarded for being so humble now. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Jesus is certainly an example for us, but there isn't any power in example. There is no long-term benefit in Jesus as an example. Jesus didn't come to earth just to show us how it done, just as if Jesus is some uh, doing some divine DIY how-to video on YouTube. Look, this is the way you live for me. Just do it. We didn't need an example. We needed a rescuer. We needed to be rescued from sin and death and the futility of the mind that our first parents imparted to us. Look at 2.6. 2.6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now contrast that attitude with Adam in Genesis 3. He disobeyed God because he was tempted by the serpent, the serpent's lure to be like God. Adam was made in God's image and disobeyed so that he could be like God. But Jesus is God and obeyed so that he could stand in the place of men. No, we aren't equipped to live for the glory of God by Jesus' example, but rather we are equipped to live for the glory of God by Jesus' work. He didn't do all of this as an example. We are a selfishly ambitious, conceited people. Like those at the Tower of Babel, we seek to make a name for ourselves and rival God to show us that we can do glorious things without him. No, we set ourselves up against God and we seek our own advantage and are opposed to one another. And this sin has placed us at enmity with one another, hostile toward one another and hostile toward God. And because of that, we're not living according to our Creator's intentions. Because we're not living according to our Creator's intentions, we deserve to be destroyed. If a potter doesn't like the pot he's making, he just squashes it and starts over. We deserve to be squashed and started over. But because we have also set ourselves against him and seek to undo his creative purposes and twist them for our benefit, we're not only due just to be destroyed, we're due judgment because we have rebelled against him. But Jesus came to earth, holy God and holy man, and he perfectly obeyed, seeking the Father's ways alone at great personal expense, not pursuing his own glory, but solely the glory of the Father. And he was killed by those he came to save because they opposed him, wrongly thinking that they were honoring the Father. But in that death, he paid the penalty that our rebellion deserves. And he was raised from the dead, proving that that penalty had been paid and he is who he said he was and that the Father is perfectly pleased with him. And he reigns over all, seated at God's right hand right now, and he will come again, and when he comes, there will be no mistake. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And so how do we benefit from this? We must acknowledge that we are sinners, and that our sin has earned us a penalty that we can never pay. But we turn from that sin, not just one time, but at every moment, repenting of it and trusting in the righteousness of Christ in our place. 
In this work of redemption, Jesus not only saves us from the punishment of our sin, but he enables us to begin to live for the glory of God for which we were created that we read about in the promise in Ezekiel 36. We're able to turn from sin and feel remorse for our sin. And we repent and even we, we even repent when we don't feel the remorse that we should feel for our sin. We are comforted by all of those things that we considered in one, two, in one and two because Christ has freed us from the destructive powers of sin. Yes, we are equipped to live for the glory of Christ by the work of Christ. And lastly, in verses 12 through 18, we are equipped to live for the glory of Christ by the word of Christ. The word spoken to us through his spirit and through the Bible. God has not left us alone to perform this work on our own. Jesus told us that he will be with us to the very end of the age. He's given us the Holy Spirit as our helper who speaks to us and works within us. He doesn't say you ought to do these things. No, in verse 13, he says, I'm working in you, for it is God who works in you, both to will, both to want to, and to work, to actually do it, to follow through for his good pleasure. God is leading us through this life by his spirit. But we aren't robots, hypnotized to put aside our own preferences and to live and to work for his good pleasure. No, this is a struggle. This is an ongoing battle of wills. My will versus thy will. Several years ago, we instituted a rule in our house that whenever someone hears the dishwasher being unloaded, you have to drop what you're doing within reason. And everybody comes to the dishwasher and we all unload the dishwasher together. Cinch by an inch, hard by the yard, right? And so <clears throat> whenever that first sound rings out through the house. I have a decision to make, right? Is it my will or thy will? I created the rule and I struggle with it. Oh, why do you have to open that dishwasher right now? Turner opened it the other day. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I don't want to do it, but it's good for us, right? I'm participating in the family. I know that my family members are in it with me and they're doing it. I'm encouraged by their willingness and I want to encourage them and there are consequences for not doing it, but there's fellowship while we're doing it and it'll be quick. I like helping. I want to help. All of those thoughts occur in about five seconds. But those aren't just my thoughts. Those are thoughts that can be traced back to God's word and God leading in me, the Holy Spirit working in me. And the Holy Spirit is working through a Rolodex of scriptures going, no, do this, do this, do this. All while I'm going, I don't really want to unload the dishwasher. But in every aspect of life, we're equipped by the word of Christ. We're equipped by the will of Christ to cause us to do things that we don't want to do. It's verse, in verse 16, it's noted as the word of life. We've been given the word of life. We're, life. we're holding fast to the word of life. In 2, Corinthians, and in 2 Timothy 3.16, our, our New Testament reading, all scripture is God-breathed 
and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Even unloading the dishwasher, even unloading the dishwasher. Equipped for living the glory of Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is working out our salvation. It's not earning it. Salvation means rescue. We can't earn rescue. Working out our salvation means bringing it to completion. We give evidence of it. We go back to 1.6. He who began this good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. We will be made perfect on that day, on the day of Christ. But until then, it is marked, progress is marked by slow, stuttering maturity. However slowly, over decades it takes. But we work out this salvation, uh, this Christian life and living for the glory of Christ with fear and with trembling. When we study the book of Hebrews, Lord willing, next month, we'll see several warning passages to consider. They aren't written to threaten us, but to warn us. To make us aware of the consequences of sin and the horror of turning away from the living God. That causes us to cling to Christ as we understand better who God is and what he's done for us and the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. God gives us his word to hold fast to. The warning passages in Hebrews enable us to look over the, over the cliff and see the destruction that, li- that, that lays over there. And instead we cling to the rock. We cling to Christ instead. God gives us his word to hold fast to. The word enables us to unplug from conventional wisdom of the world and instead to calibrate our minds and our lives and our hearts to live for the glory of Christ. This is why we end with the prayer of confession rather than begin our service with the prayer of confession. Because we have heard and read and sung and prayed God's words God's word and it reminds us of our own sin and it shows us where we've gone astray and how we've bought into the lies of this world now we gather to listen to God's word together we make it a point to encourage you to to talk to one another as the word about the word read and preached so that we may better glorify God we give you a moment of silence to think about what you've heard and consider how to spur one another on to love and good works When we do this, we learn the mind of Christ, resting on the work of Christ and holding fast to the word of Christ. We are better equipped to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 14. He uses these means of grace that we considered to make us blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked twisted generation equipped to shine like lights in the world living like this that like this that Paul describes stands out in the world it's different we encourage one another with the hope of Christ soon and certain return on that final day we will rejoice because we will know that we have not labored in vain we will gladly be able to say this life Seeking others' interest was worth it. 
will be glad to be poured out as an offering for the benefit of others. And we can be encouraged when we see others' lives willingly being poured out for ours. This is how we live and work for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you have saved us for your glory. You created us for your glory. You've saved us for your glory. You sustain us for your glory. Father, forgive us for every single time, even in the midst of a 10-second conversation that we have sought our glory as opposed to yours. Lord, captivate our minds and our hearts with the glory of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this work that you're doing in us to renew our minds. Lord, we lean into your work, trusting that we are not standing before you justified because of our own merit. Lord, but we lean on Christ and we fully trust him. Lord, please continue to renew your spirit within us. Lord, give us a trust and a in a in a firm belief in your word and lord may we be generous in sharing that word with others so that we may live equipped for your glory in christ's name amen